Welcome to Healthcare Rounds. I'm your host, John Marchica, CEO of Darwin Research Group and faculty associate at the Arizona State University College of Health Solutions. Here we explore the vast and rapidly evolving healthcare ecosystem with leaders across the spectrum of healthcare delivery. Our goal is to promote ideas that advance the quadruple aim, including improving the patient experience, improving the health of populations, lowering the cost of care, and attaining joy in work. Please send your questions, comments, or ideas for Healthcare Rounds to podcast at darwinresearch.com. And if you like what you hear, please don't forget to rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Let's get started. In his role as Strive Health's Vice President of Strategy and Development, Jackson Brasher draws on more than 15 years of experience to lead Strive Health's system team in their company mission to transform kidney care. Before joining the leadership team at Strive, Jackson held corporate strategy and business development roles at the advisory board company, Trillian Health, and Cardinal Health, working with hospitals, health systems, and provider practices across the country on various innovation and growth initiatives. Jackson holds a BA from the University of Virginia and an MBA from Duke. So thank you, Jackson, for um, appearing on Healthcare Rounds today. I appreciate your, your taking some time to talk to me and for our listeners. Um, the magic of podcasting, we would have already recorded an intro or something, but uh, so there'll be a little bio in there, but maybe just kick us off with tell, tell us about your, your background and what brought you to Strive Health. Yeah, absolutely. So first of all, thanks for having me. This is actually a very welcome break in, uh, in, in a pretty standard workday. Um, but in terms of background, I'll go all the way back. Uh, I know I joked a little bit the previous time we met, but um, born and raised in Nashville, Tennessee. So from very early on, a, a healthcare and, and even specifically hospital town where uh, sort of it's, it's implanted upon you early, you know, that the noble calling is, is to go work in healthcare. And if you can do it at a hospital or a health system, that's even better. Um, so I was on that yeah. path from early on to work in healthcare. Um, went to went to school in Virginia, finished up there, headed up north to Washington, D.C., poked around and said, all right, what's the, you know, what's the healthcare company here um, that everyone seems to be gravitating toward? And it was a, a company called the Advisory Board Company. So has since merged into another organization. But at the time when I was there, just uh, incredibly vibrant place of, of a bunch of sharp individuals that were all thinking very long and hard about, about healthcare and about what needed to change and what was working mm-hmm. well and keep doing the things that work well and change the things that need to change. Um, and that continued to, to send me on my way through a few, do- few different organizations since then, um, where I've held roles largely in the, the, the strategy and, and growth, whether it's through consulting or whether it's through actual like corporate strategy roles of fundamentally just asking, you know, how do we innovate? How do we do things different? Uh, and more often than not, working with health systems who are trying to do that. So uh, while I may have failed in actually ever going and, and physically working for a health system, um, have been around a lot of services organizations and technology organizations that uh, that partner with health systems to, to think about new ways to grow. So uh, with Strive Health, I joined about two years ago. Um, Strive is is the company that uh, participates in the the value based kidney care corner of the large healthcare ecosystem. Um, at that time, a newer organization, so a company that was um, really getting off the ground in in 2019, shortly before I joined. Um, but play a role on the strategy team uh, and, again, continue to help health systems and other providers in the space really think through 
what does it mean to meet a lot of the the changing dynamics that that are happening right now in the the kidney care industry so that's the short of it right well we're going to get a chance to talk about a lot of that here over the next half hour or so um i did have a chance to listen to most not all but most of the free economics um pod that you had recommended is pretty long so i wasn't i wasn't prepared but it's, it's fascinating um and and I've come to believe that the dialysis market is really unlike any other when you think about how care is delivered, how it's paid for, who the players are. So I thought, let's just assume that our listeners uh, aren't very familiar with the market and that they kind of came into it with about a, a level of understanding that I have right now after listening to 45 minutes of a podcast. I, I know a little bit more about it than that, but um and just give us an overview of the of the players, the the patients, and the and the payers. Yeah, so probably just start with with kidney care overall because that's that's really the interesting story here. And and fundamentally, it's this it's this specialty that um, going back to the 1970s largely remained the same for decades. Uh, and then, as many folks will say now, there there is been more change really in the last two years than there has uh, over the previous two decades prior to that in this space. And so from a disease perspective, first, I'll, I'll start there. And again, not a clinician, so you'll get a much better uh, read on this from other folks. But um, kidney care is the disease is, is organized around chronic kidney disease. So it's, it's a five-stage disease, um, TKD, where a patient progresses through stage one, two, three, four, five, ultimately reaching a point of kidney failure. So your kidney's inability to, to adequately um, filter out waste from the blood, at which point your kidney fails and you become an end-stage renal disease patient. Uh, once you are end-stage, your, your two options moving forward from there are either you get a transplant, so you get a brand new kidney that performs the functions necessary, or you go on to dialysis. Uh, and so dialysis is what you reference as um, this this whole industry by which we artificially uh, clean the blood for a patient's body. And there's a couple different ways that it can happen. And there's a couple different places that it can happen, whether it's in an actual center or whether it's in a home setting. Um, but I think some of the important distinctions to make for the disease, one for CKD is, is it is a disease that once you start progressing, there is no there is no going back or there is no getting out of it altogether. So uh, much of a patient's journey and much of a focus is, you know, can we slow your progression down, um, keep you mm -hmm. in the stage that you are in at that time and, and prolong your, your uh, ability to remain in that stage um, or educate you what happens when you sort of take the next step forward into the next stage of the disease. TKD stages one, two, and, and even three, um, Oftentimes, kidney care is, is not the primary uh, disease that's being treated for a patient. So it is a disease that um, sort of your gateway in is often through diabetes. Uh, it's often through hypertension. Obesity is a, a big contributing factor uh, in either of those. And it's a, it's a very polychronic population. So a lot of comorbidities, uh, a lot on the primary care physicians to sort of uh, balance out a, a patient's health. Uh, as they inevitably start sort of marching towards uh, a, a kidney failure event. And so the industry that treats kidney disease has traditionally straddled primary care and then the specialist that you start to see once you reach later stages of kidney disease, which is a nephrologist. 
other providers that you reference in this space are the dialysis providers. And so, again, once reaching end-stage renal disease, if you are not transplanted uh, and then you go on dialysis, uh, there are organizations that, that provide dialysis. Sometimes it's in the hospital. That's often where you might start. Uh, but then you go into an in-center outpatient dialysis facility, uh, of which there are a couple very, very large providers of those. Uh, and you pretty much do that three hours a day, three or four days a week until either uh, you pass away as a patient or until uh, you're able to get off the kidney transplant list and get a transplant. So um, patient journey that's fraught with a lot of difficulties is sort of the main takeaway with this. Uh, and then an industry focus that over the last 40 to 50 years has largely been on end-stage care uh, because as we'll get into, there's there's a few very interesting reimbursement dynamics that have have been at play here, um, and maybe we go into those. But I'll I'll stop there for any clarifying questions. Yeah, I, let's let's get into the the reimbursement stuff because that's that's where when I was listening on the the Freakonomics podcast, where my ears perked up, and I thought this is wow, this is really interesting. So talk a little bit about the the payer dynamics. Yeah, so uh, going back to the 1950s or 60s, and again, there's some great podcasts on this, there's books on these, there's articles that have been written at length on this, so so nothing new directly for me, but um, dialysis machines, the equipment necessary to, to artificially filter a patient's blood, uh, invented and, and started to grow across the 1950s and 60s, but they were prohibitively expensive for most patients uh, to either get access to or even for commercial health plans to be able to cover on their own. So 1972 is a critical year for um, kidney care where uh, the government enacted a policy by which any patient uh, that is diagnosed as end-stage renal disease and not transplanted and thus requiring dialysis would effectively become a Medicare fee-for-service patient. So regardless of age, regardless of commercial insurance that they might have, you know, no waiting until you're 65 years old, you just become a, a Medicare patient. And then there's some nuance there because you remain on your commercial plan for this little 30-month window that's, that's another fairly hot topic in the industry. Um, but those patients went on to Medicare, and that, that's just the way it was until a couple years ago. Um, and so across those decades where Medicare is, is picking up the tab on dialysis treatments, you know, you have regulated reimbursement rates. Medicare pays an amount often around $250 per treatment uh, to patients, and patients are just on the Medicare books, and, and that's kind of the way it was. In the background of that happening, uh, again, that's where the reimbursement was. So that's where the sort of how to provide care for these patients shifted. And you had a lot of dialysis organizations and clinics that very quickly scaled over decades to provide, um, you know, efficient service to kidney care patients who needed dialysis. All that's in a fee-for-service world. Uh, so there are two things that have changed recently, one of them on the, the value-based care side, and then one of them just on the direct commercial reimbursement side uh, that are the reasons for the saying of kidney care changing more in the last two years than the previous couple decades. One of them is something called the 21st Century Cures Act, which effective January of 2021, for the first time ever, patients that were ESRD could opt in to Medicare Advantage plans. So you've done podcasts on the growth of Medicare Advantage plans over the last 10 years. It's where a lot of the industry is shifting. 
uh, up until January of last year, end stage patients were never allowed to opt into one of those plans if they wanted to. They had to remain on the, the Medicare fee-for-service books. The second thing that happened is um, CMMI, so the Innovation Division of, of CMS, um, through executive orders and through some guidance from uh, the executive branch, thought we need to evaluate new payment models for end-stage renal disease and for chronic kidney disease. So how do we take the success of what we have learned, we being CMS through value-based care models, most notably their Medicare Shared Savings Program, ACOs, their accountable care organizations, where you're sort of putting a group of providers on the hook for delivering better care uh, at better value for patients, and how can we apply that to the, the kidney disease and the nephrology space? Traditional Medicare ACOs have largely attributed patients into those models through primary care physicians. So if you're a patient and you see a primary care physician who's participating in one of those programs, you become a part of that um, a part of that program and a part of that risk pool, if you will. Effective January of this current year, uh, there was a new model that went live where CMS built ACOs around nephrologist attribution. And so they, they had gone this way in the past through the, the ESCO models that, that we talked a little bit about um, when we first met, uh, which were largely organized around for end-stage renal care, how can we incentivize providers to work together and, and do what's right for the patient, lower cost of care, increase outcomes and quality and, and all the components of the triple aim. Um, but it was limited to just end-stage renal disease. So thinking where we started this conversation, there's a lot more to kidney care than just end-stage. And if you're really going to prevent someone from reaching end-stage, you need to move upstream. You need to work with that patient through their late stages of CKD to slow down their progression. Um, so it was a new model that went live this year that built ACOs around nephrologists and said, for CKD 4, 5, and ESRD, let's take that patient, um, we'll attribute them to these models, and we'll, we'll, we'll put in shared savings mechanisms that incentivize doing things that, that slow down that, that cost of care. So all of a sudden, these two things happening at the same time, you have payers that are, are commercial payers that are on the hook for patients through their Medicare Advantage products that they've never had to be managing before, so end-stage patients, so everything from figuring out how to underwrite those patients to deliver clinical services to those patients, care management services. It was just a very new thing for them that is still very new to this day. On the other hand, you have nephrologists participating in new value-based care models that they otherwise uh, had not. And so everyone who participates in healthcare right now is, is seemingly kind of shifting around the, the table of, okay, what's our, what's our strategy? What role should we be playing in this? Um, in this new normal where there are new reimbursement mechanisms, there's new programs, uh, these patients all of a sudden have more choice than they've had in the past. And the end result of that is you're getting this large group of, of traditionally unmanaged patients that are moving into very managed programs, whether it's through CMS and the, the CKCC model, which is the ACO-like model that I alluded to, or whether it's through just opting into Medicare Advantage plans that that traditionally do a better job of having very specialized programs for their um, for their members. So <clears throat> you referenced the older program, if I understand right, the, uh, the Medicare program. Previously, it was really just focused on end stage, and now they're bringing they're kind of going upstream and allowing more patients to get in 
into the program as well as kind of putting the nephrologist at the center of the call it an ACO, but at the center of that the process. Is that yeah, right? and uh, it is right. It is right. Okay. And I would I would say the you know the previous program was was well intentioned. Again, it was largely trying to incentivize the dialysis providers, which are traditionally you know independent owned dialysis centers that are providing dialysis. This is often not a, a hospital-owned service line. Um, it is an independent provider in the communities that offers dialysis. And so you get you get patients in silos, you get patient leakage, you get different patient journeys where, where communication is not flowing back and forth in optimal ways. Uh, but you were trying to get the dialysis providers to work with the nephrologist. Um, again, it was just end stage, so it's not solving for any of the upstream can we just avoid the problem before we even get to it, uh, which is seemingly a much larger question. Um, so it took the right steps, but was just, uh, it, it was it was a little bit too little. Uh, the new model is trying to remedy that. So uh, we talk a lot about health systems, IDNs on, on this pod. Um, I know that we fairly certainly have a decent number of listeners out there from health systems. Um, so my question is, what is the role, where does the health system fit? Um, as you just mentioned that they have all these independent providers. And then how does, get a little, talking a little bit more about Strive, how do, how do you interact with these health systems? What role do you play? Kind of talk about this, this dynamic. Yeah. So I think the distinction between, you know, a, a hospital or more of a standalone system and a true IDN is an important one here. And it's the, the IDNs, the integrated delivery networks of health systems that have multiple locations and multiple physician practices across multiple specialties and inpatient and outpatient and, and ability to um, fully service all the healthcare needs of, of a population. Um, naturally lends itself to caring for these patients, but it's not a patient group that a health system has traditionally provided care for. And that's for a couple of reasons. One, nephrologists are historically a very independent specialty. So whereas mm -hmm. health systems are always trying to uh, employ primary care physicians in their market, or they're trying to employ the top specialists and surgeons for a number of different procedures, uh, nephrology has often just sat outside as, as this independent practice um, that operates independent. And so nephrologists in any given market often have very good relationships with all major health systems in their market. And they haven't formally been brought in as, as an employed specialty group within the health system, but they have to work well together. Uh, the other element here is just the, the, the timeline of dialysis and sort of the role that the health system plays, which is unfortunately for most patients who progress from late stage CKD to a kidney failure event uh, and that transition to end-stage renal disease, their first interaction with that disease is through what we call a, a, a kidney crash event or a kidney failure event, which is um, you can look at, at the numbers and it's anywhere from, from 50 to 60% of late-stage CKD patients um, often unaware of, of their kidney disease. And then all of a sudden they wake up one morning and they're, they're feeling nauseous and they're feeling dizzy. Their kidneys failed. They go to the ER. They sort of have a traumatic, oftentimes winding up in the ICU experience at the health system. Uh, and then sort of come to with a physician saying, you're an ESRD patient. Your kidney has failed, um, which is a very traumatic moment. But it's So the, wait, it's, let me just interrupt you one second. So people can go through 
these various stages it's happening to them and they don't even know it. And then they, they have an event and one day they wake up in the hospital and all of a sudden like that. Wow. It's unfortunately far too common. Um, and again, it goes back to across the early stages. These are, these are diabetes patients. These are hypertension patients. These are patients that um, have cardiac issues that they're, they're working through. And, you know, that's what their primary care physician is treating because that's, that's, sort of in the the first chair of their disease state. Um, kidney care, unfortunately, lurks in the background. And then TKD stage three, three B, four, five, it can start to accelerate very rapidly. And and they might know they've had it. You know, it can show up on a on a panel test and in some of their lab work, but they're still they're so focused on managing their diabetes or their hypertension or other diseases that they're not thinking of getting ahead of what happens if my kidney fails. Um, and Primary care physicians, given panel sizes right now, have a lot on them to manage a large number of patients and, you know, can't spend as much time with any single patient as, as they might want to. And so um, this does happen to, to be a result of, of, of that, where this disease can just not ever be what's on the top of the mind for this patient until their kidney fails. Uh, and then all of a sudden they're told, you know, you either need to get you on a transplant list or... We need to get you booked in a dialysis and you start tomorrow. Uh, major lifestyle change, major education event for understanding, not just for the patient, but for the patient's family, for the patient's caretakers, kind of what that means and how that's going to impact jobs, how it's going to impact sort of, you know, there's a lot of, of social and behavioral issues that come to play here as well that need to be managed. But um, unfortunately, that does continue to be the, the, the result of our system where too many patients are crashing into dialysis. So in, in, uh, in my notes, I had something um, that you're talking about uh, sort of the whole person or full person model. So talk to me about that because I think, I think what you're speaking to is that, you know, maybe you have a primary care doctor that's concerned about diabetes and that's all they're focused on, but a whole person or, or a full person model I think is something entirely different. So what does that look like? Yeah. And so, and, you know, primary care should not be bucketed as just focused on, on diabetes. Again, they'll, they'll see kidney care that shows up in a panel test and it's, it's uh, okay, let's manage your diabetes. Let's continue managing your hypertension. Let's keep an eye on your kidney disease. We'll see you again in six months. And that six months, you know, the, the kidney disease can rapidly move towards a failure event. So do not in any way miss, you know, wish to, to put this on primary care physicians. Just, just, you know, we have sure. primary care physicians. We know how many patients that they have to see. Uh, we know we're not always, always top of mind for every single thing that's on our, our checklist. Of course. Of um, course. And so, uh, you know, Half of these patients will get referred to a nephrologist when they're CKD four or five. So large part of the population is starting to see a nephrologist, which can present its, its own issues when we go back to that idea that largely these nephrologists are independent. So oftentimes if you have a primary care physician that's part of a medical group that's either employed or strongly affiliated with, with one health system and that nephrologist could be very independent and patients start, you know, not all the notes flow back and forth the way that they should. I'm sure you've had a number of folks on the podcast that, that are trying to solve for 
communication breakdowns and bi-directional data flows uh, mm -hmm. that rears its head for this population, um, not just for CKD, but also ESRD. When you introduce a dialysis clinic into the mix and a patient has a primary care physician, they have a nephrologist, they also have a dialysis clinic that they have to go visit three times a week. Uh, it, it's, it's hard to put someone right in the middle of all of that that can coordinate everything. So back to the full person model, I guess. Yep. Is that where, where Strive comes in? Talk to me. We've, you've been so great educating us about this, this fascinating market, but tell me a little bit about where your organization comes in. Yeah, no, no. First goal is anyone who hears this and just walks away saying kidney care is kidney care is a little more interesting than I thought, or there's a lot more going on that I wasn't paying attention to that, you know, that's primary goal. Um, I think, you know, with Strive and with, with other organizations that have entered this space in the last five years, uh, there is a strong recognition now that to your point of whole person care, the best thing for the patient, which any good value-based care model is going to start with, you know, regardless of the incentives sure. that's out there right now, or regardless of, of, of the, the patient journeys that exist now, like how do we forget all of that, develop intentional amnesia and sit back and say, okay, if we're going to build this ground up from a patient perspective, what do we need to do? Um, and so three components to that one moving upstream. So we've talked about that a little bit, but if we're going to actively work with patients that are CKD three, four, and five and treat them holistically, uh, how do we do that? And so to your point about holistic care, you're always solving for the comorbidities and the other chronic uh, diseases that this patient has had. So you're doing it increasingly through a renal lens, which has implications for what their diet should be, has implications for medications that they should be on, has implications for things that you might be making decisions around to manage their diabetes or their hypertension but it has a lot of impact on how rapidly their kidney care progresses. Um, you can't just treat kidney disease in a vacuum. So you have to take whole person care uh, as, as sort of your mission for this patient population. But, you know, we talk, we talk about Strive. I think there's three things that, um, that the company tries to do. One, move upstream, manage these patients. Two, do it through a very high touch care model. So recognize that these patients have a primary care physician that they might see a couple times a year. They might have a nephrologist they see more frequently than that. There's a lot of days, and weeks, and moments in between those visits where they still need things. They need to be able to solve nutritional issues. They need to be able to solve behavioral issues. They have questions about medication. They have questions about how they're feeling. Um, so how do we put in place a high-touch care model that does just that, that's rooted on sort of, you know, advanced data and analytics? So how are we accurately predicting and risk stratifying who are the patients that need what at what time? Um, the final piece of it is, is just the movement towards risk and value-based care. So health systems have a lot on them. Provider groups have a lot on them. Payers have a lot on them right now. But as an organization, if you're going to solve this problem, how do you do it in a way that's fairly aggressive in approach to say, you know, we're going to have an impact and, and we're, we're going to put ourselves on the hook to have that impact. And so as these reimbursement models continue um, coming forward between taking upside, downside risk on these patients, uh, you know, how do we put in place a structure that says we'll put ourselves on the hook to drive the incentives like you as a health system, you as a payer, you as a nephrology practice, keep doing what you're doing and then we'll we'll step in and provide the care model that, that's going to optimize for all of this. So, but I, so I understand 
in a sense, maybe this is the wrong analogy, but you're kind of like the quarterback and the manager of this particular patient when a, a single resource managing the process. And if you're able to maintain a high quality of care and save money, then either the health system or the or the payer is going to that's your revenue model. Am I am I getting that right? Yep. Or is it more complicated than that? No, so I think of ourselves more as extenders. Again, we want the primary care physician and we want the nephrologist to still be sort of primary decision maker in what's happening to these patients. We want to work very closely with the existing provider network and not go around any any physician that's already a part of that patient's care plan. But we want to be the one to say, we can see that patient in their home on a weekly basis if that's what they need. Or if they can't get back into a primary care physician appointment for another few months, like let us ask them how their day is going. Let us solve for their nutritional issues. Let us solve for transportation issues. Let us solve for behavioral issues and do it with a clinical team. Um, so we have locally licensed clinical teams and the, the markets that we're in that can can at the NP level and down. So again, not not replacing physician care in this equation, but saying we have an interdisciplinary team that can keep our eye on these patients every moment of the day and then make sure that whatever needs to, to get fed back to primary care and nephrology for their decisions and their inputs that that's happening. So it's more of an extender connective tissue than like the true quarterback of, you know, pull these patients away from their primary care physician. Not at all, not at all the intent of, of what we're trying to do. And then to the, to the revenue model, um, again, the incentives are out there now. There are CMS programs and there are Medicare Advantage plans that are saying, spend is way too high for this patient population. The one that gets thrown around most often in the, in the Medicare world is that it's 1% of the population at 7% of, of the overall Medicare spend. Um, I think these patients across the entire federal budget are somewhere in the neighborhood of, of like 17%, which is crazy. Um, and so wow. there, there's just a lot of, there's a lot of, of, of utilization of healthcare um, that if better managed, uh, winds up working well for the patient. Again, the patient doesn't want to go into the hospital when they don't have to. If it's something that can be treated at home. Um, the patient wants to know in advance and treat something minor before it becomes something major. Uh, and then as a result of that, as a result of Medicare Advantage plans increasingly pl playing in the space, as a result of, of CMS increasingly shifting these patients into more managed value-based care models, um, the incentives kind of line up after that from a, from a shared savings perspective. Well, this is great. I did have one last question um, that I've been wondering about. Is, is there, are you seeing a trend um, towards more home-based dialysis? Is that, is that a thing that's happening? Because I know other areas of care delivery are really trying to push it into the home where patients are happier and they're healthier and hopefully, you know, it's, it's less expense. So what does that market look like? Um, yeah, I, to clarify the previous point, I know 17% of the federal budget on healthcare overall, but it, it's somewhere in the neighborhood of 1% is, is on just the ESRD population. So large, large amount of spend. Um, home dialysis is a very interesting topic right now. So I mentioned two things that have happened recently along kind of payment reform and value-based models. Uh, there's a, a third area that's happening in the medical device space at the moment where machines are either being approved or coming up for approval um, that enable home dialysis 
uh, in a way that we haven't seen before. So traditionally home dialysis, there's two types of dialysis, hemodialysis, which is traditionally end center, uh, and then perinatal dialysis, um, which is a slower overnight cleanse of the blood that can be done at home. Um, but dialysis machines, which depend heavily on their water supply, which usually has to be provided, and I'm taking you down in the, the weeds now, but has to be provided no, in an it. actual center that can, you know, have that water supply that a, a traditional house is not, um, is, is all of a sudden being disruptive by a few different companies that can provide machines that, that do hospital-like dialysis in the home. And so the broader trend of, of healthcare at home is, is certainly one that's creeping in um, to kidney care. The U.S. as a whole is, is 12% of dialysis patients dialyzed at home. Um, there's European countries that are in excess of 50 to 60% of the population dialyzed at home. We just haven't really made a commitment to it yet. That's changing. Um, incentives are being put in place. So again, an executive order from a few years ago said we want to put incentives in place to dialyze at home. Um, so for nephrologists who can enable that to happen, there's a, there's an economic incentive to do that. You couple that with the med device industry reaching a point where there are newer machines that allow that to be a capability. Um, and that's a, it's a tremendous area of, of growth for folks um, over the next several years. You know, will, will the U.S. get to 40 percent or in line with a lot of other developed countries? There's a lot of work to, to do before we get there. But um I would say most participants in the, the kidney care industry, including the, the legacy large dialysis organizations, are all incentivizing home dialysis right now. So absolutely something that's better for the patient and something that we see increasing in, um, in frequency uh, in the U.S. It just seems to me that, you know, it's just it's very disruptive to have to leave your home multiple times a week for several hours at a time. You know, if you could do that in the comfort of your own home, um, then I, I think people would, would appreciate that. But uh, Jackson, we've gone a few minutes over. I wanted to thank you so much for, this has been really educational. I learned, I learned even more than I did on from the other pod and from our earlier conversation. And I think people are really going to appreciate this. It's a, on a topic that we haven't talked about. So this is great. Yeah, no, it's fun. Thank you for having me. And again, there's, um, there's a lot happening right now. So for all the listeners, we jump around a lot uh, and apologies for that. But it's payers are innovating in the space. Systems are innovating in the space. Devices innovating in the space. The government's innovating in this space. And the, the patients, fortunately, will benefit from it. But there's a lot of a lot of shifting around right now as, as we try to recognize, um, you know, kind of what is the new new standard in kidney care. But it's it's exciting. I'm glad that the, this corner of healthcare is it's finally getting attention um, that it's deserved for many years. Well, you know what's really cool? I'll end on this thought. People can't, we're, we're doing this via Zoom so that people can't see you. They can hear you, obviously, and hear it in your voice. But it's great that you're passionate about this. And, you know, you, you, I can tell that you're into the work that you do. And that must be very fulfilling. Well, I appreciate you saying that because I, full transparency, do not have a history in kidney oh, care dialysis. We have plenty of folks. Uh, we have plenty of folks at the, the organization that I work for that come from that background. So they fill all my gaps in actual knowledge. But it's, um, you know, it seems like you got there on your own. But I would challenge listeners, you know, just do a little digging and say, okay, what's the history of kidney care? It doesn't take long to say. Feels like there's some perverse incentives here. It feels like we're not really doing what we should do for the patient. So it's. Um, uh, 
not hard to come to the recognition that we should we should do things a little different, but I appreciate that. Great. Jackson, thanks again. Yep, John, great to talk to you. On behalf of all of us at Darwin Research Group, thanks for listening. Healthcare Rounds is produced and engineered by me, Sam Yates, with theme music by John Marchica. Darwin Research Group leverages the power of information to enhance human health by providing advanced market intelligence and in-depth customer insights to healthcare executives. Our strategic focus is on healthcare delivery systems and the global shift toward value-based care. Check us out at darwinresearch.com. See you next round.